So today's scripture reading is going to be Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. We uh, are concluding. Uh, I appreciate Jay's reading from Paul's closing in, in chapter 16. He has a couple of closings in, in uh, 15 and 16. But in that closing, he makes that appeal. Don't listen to people that are going to lead you astray, that preach contrary to the gospel. And it is my prayer that last spring and this fall, we, I have preached with integrity uh, not only Paul's message written in the, in the book of Romans, but Christ's message, the Holy Spirit's message for our hearts. And I appreciate you coming along on that journey with us. It uh, begins with that idea that, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, or it is the power for all to salvation. Amen? And then he spends 11 chapters talking about the way all are included in that salvation, Jew and Gentile, and that if they turn to Christ, they have found the answer to God's salvation by way of grace and faith. The second half turns to this idea, and this is where we've been this fall, this idea that if it is the grace of Christ that brings us to where we are, and the grace of Christ is most fully represented in his sacrifice of his life on the cross and God's raising him up from the dead, that we then need to emulate what Jesus is doing by being living sacrifices. Amen? We follow Jesus in that, and we trust God will lift us up in the same way God lifted Christ up. Not just in an eternity, not just in an end game, but every single day that I will lay my life down as a sacrifice, and He will pick me up and point me in the direction I need to go. It has been a process that has taken us from one of Paul's greatest expressions of his theology to some of the most powerful words he says about how we are to live in the world, interacting with the world, and in the church so that we represent this gospel of Jesus, this grace that has been given us through Christ. But I think as he comes to chapter 16, he summarizes and gives us the most important Final instruction when it comes to, if you're going to be a living sacrifice, here is what you need to do. And it may be one of the most controversial things that he has to say in the book. Are you ready? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Everybody gasp for me. Chapter 16 is a, 16, is a chapter that's full of greetings. In this... He ends it by saying, greet one another with the holy kiss. In some ways, it is a powerful statement about the idea that Jews and Gentiles, who may have a lot of different opinions about things, who may have even done things like condemning each other or despising one another, as we looked at in chapters 14 and 15, said, no, 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 that can't be what it's about. It needs to be about a holy kiss. 
It needs to be about a relationship that is intimate and reflective of I love you and I appreciate you beside me. This is not necessarily something that's all that big a deal in our society. We don't exchange kisses regularly, particularly not just as a, as a, a familiar, a friendship kind of expression, but in other parts of the world, this is, in fact, the parts of the world that this letter was written to, this continues to be a bit of an of a expression to even today. I've run into good friends, particularly like missionaries. Uh, Sarah Meadows was a missionary in Brazil, and I would get to run into Sarah, friend of our families. Our church sponsored her when I was a young child. How in the world she keeps track of me and take, loves me is kind of a miracle all by itself. But I would see her for several years at Pepperdine Lectures. It would be our annual greeting of each other. And before we, the last time, kind of towards the end of that, she would find me and look me up. And she would hug me, always a big hugger, big, huge hug. And then she would kiss me on one cheek and say, this is for your mother. And she'd kiss me on the other cheek and this is for your father. And this is for, and this is for, and this is for all these people who live in Temple that she knows. And then she would finally give me one more kiss and say, and this is for you. A powerful greeting. And you, of course, needed a little help getting cleaned up after that was over. But there was never anything in it except great, incredible Christian affection. And I want you to know that when she was done, I felt blessed. I didn't feel embarrassed. I didn't feel like she had some crossed some sort of, of line in an in intimacy of relationship. Instead, what I felt was blessed. I hope that we extend blessings to each other. If that's in the form of a handshake, great. If that's in the form of, as we've become a little more used to, the elbow bump, you know, it's always been a little crazy to me. We have a pandemic going on. We are told to cough into our elbows, and then we're going to extend that out there to shake hands. Seems to me that that's worse than shaking hands, but... And I just appreciate so many people that are willing to express their community and fellowship to me with a hug. Um, it's always kind of fun the first time guys come into the room before the service and they're going to do something for the first time and we get ready to pray and we typically circle up and kind of arms around each other and if you've not done that before it's like, whoa, wait, what am I supposed to do? High, low, where, where am I going with that? And, and yet it is a powerful statement of our relationship to one another. Chapter 16 unfolds this incredible, amazing list. This list of names. Uh, there are other lists of names, of course, the genealogies that we have in both the Old and New Testament. But in the sense of identifying people who aren't just related to each other, but have had significant roles. I think of the list in Nehemiah, where you have families who rebuilt certain parts of the wall. And their names are preserved for all of us to read their names. And I think it's a powerful thing that Paul chooses to list these names. What you find in this list are names that reflect Hebrew or Jewish origins. So you have some of the Jewish members of the church. You have people in this list whose names reflect a Greek or a Hellenistic origin. That is to say they probably aren't from Rome, but they're living in Rome, but they certainly grew up in a much more uh, Gentile or Hellenistic sort of background. And then you have some people who are native, probably native to Rome. Their names are of Latin origin. And, and again, you didn't have that Latin origin in names except for the most part in Italy. And the biggest population in Italy was in Rome. 
And so you've got people that are from a long ways off. You've got people that are near and moved in for commerce or whatever it may be. And then you have people who've been there maybe all their lives. And they're part of the church. They're part of the kingdom. Probably what Paul is doing is a little bit of a listing of all of the house churches that are found in the city of Rome. You need to really get the idea out of your mind of, of what we assemble in when you think about that first century church. There was very few places where they would assemble in a big hall all together at the same time. Most of them would have been kicked out of the synagogues. And if they hadn't gotten kicked off, they weren't allowed to be there, uh, particularly if they professed Christ as the Messiah. The, the public houses were not, uh, the public auditoriums were not necessarily open to them as well, particularly this late a date in the in the mission of the church so what you had was homes some of them probably quite small six eight ten twelve people at the most would be able to gather there yes you had some larger homes where wealthy people would have lived and had their businesses in fact to a certain extent the phrase of the idea of the household of would be in that list there and that may mean not only just the church that meets at their house but all the servants and family that would have been part of that gathering of people. It is amazing. Paul having never been to Rome, and yet he seems to know all these people. Whether he's had a personal encounter with them or not, or just the story of what they're doing for the kingdom and what they're doing for the gospel has become known to him. They are friends of friends. To a certain extent, I've, I've had several experiences just in the last few weeks of where I recognize that because I'm a, I'm a person of faith and I'm a, I've been an active member of church of all my life, I, I've recognized that there are people I've never met, but I'm connected to them, sometimes through you, sometimes through other folks. And wait, oh, we know each other. We don't know each other, but we have this connection. And Paul says, I know you. And even more, Paul says, I appreciate you. I'm glad we've got the names. I think it's wonderful to look at these names and think about who these people were and what they did in Rome and how they made a difference for the kingdom and the gospel. But we can look beyond the names at some of the descriptions that go with them. This one was in prison with me or these were in prison with me. This one is my beloved in the Lord. Wow. What a relationship. One who is approved in Christ. It's a really interesting phrase. Because in reality, everyone who is filled with the Spirit and has been baptized and is part of Christ is approved by Christ. There's something a little more going on here. And Paul doesn't maybe give us as good a hint to it as James does. When James uses this word, it's the idea, don't be afraid of temptation because temptation is what tests your faith and makes your faith stronger. This word is the idea that, that you've been tested. You've been through some sort of ordeal. And you've come out on the other side. Whether that was persecution for his Christian life or maybe he was ill in some ways and, and the church prayed over him and he came back from that. Hard to exactly know what Paul meant by it. But bottom line is he says you've, you have withstood the test. You've been faithful through a time when you could have lost faith. Chosen in the Lord. His friend that's chosen in the Lord. And a 
very special and unique way. There's one more that I think is even more powerful that, that kind of speaks to me in a really wonderful way. Rufus is mentioned by name, and Paul greets his mother and says, and she's like a mother to me as well. I don't know about anybody else here, but I am so blessed by so many women that I've known all my life who have treated me as if I was their child, their son. Some of them were Bible class teachers. Some of them were just partners in ministry in various different ways. Some of them are just people who love and pray for me and care for me and speak affirming words. Betty Stark didn't let a Sunday go by that she didn't say how much she appreciated me. There was a very special way in which, you know, again, as we get older and our mothers, we don't get to be with our mothers all the time. Some of you have all your family here. Congratulations. Paula, you're extra blessed in that way. And your children and grandchildren are extra blessed in that way. I'm not. And it is wonderful to have those women who speak motherly, nurture, care to you. But in fact, the list is much more focused on the idea of working in the kingdom. Work with me in Christ Jesus, who's been a hard worker among you. A co-worker in Christ, workers in the Lord, who've worked hard in the Lord. That idea that Paul recognizes that some of these people, the people that he's calling out there, have gone the extra mile. This isn't just the idea that you somehow or another um, have, as a Christian, you instantaneously become a worker. I think he's affirming that there are some of you who have given much of yourself. You have made it your your job to be engaged in what can benefit the kingdom and the gospel and particularly the people that meet in your home with you. You have been a servant to them in a very special sort of way. And I have to ask, there are lists with your names on them. We have multiples of them. You have one on your phone that has everybody's name in this church. And your list name is on that list. We, we all want to point towards that, that idea of we're on the, in the, on the list of the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen? But I want to ask you, if somebody's describing you, would they say, here's a worker. Here's somebody who works hard. Works hard in the kingdom. Do you have something that you call your work for God? Do you have something that you call your work for Christ? And yes, we all carry a, a burden to be the best husbands or wives, to be the best parents or grandparents we can be, and that is work in the kingdom. Amen? Some of you have very special kinds of things, whether you have a, a child that bears a little more load than, than maybe other children, and that is a very powerful thing, and it points to the kingdom. But do we all have a sense that we can say? And, and I will tell you, there's a special challenge in this for me. What do I do that's not about earning my paycheck at this place, but is just something I want to give to this church? And I challenge myself, where are those pieces of the puzzle? I challenge you. Where is your ministry? And if you don't have an answer to that question, you need to find one. Because God has called us to be a body together. And if we have parts of the body that aren't functioning, then we're less. And we need you. And the kingdom needs you. And I want to point you 
towards our website that has our ministries and our ministry leaders. I want to point you towards our elders who can be people who can kind of help you find your way in that. But I want to encourage you. Don't let the question of what my work for the kingdom is go unanswered. It doesn't have to be inside these walls. Amen? It doesn't even have to be something that says the Christian this on top of it. But you need to see it as your heart for ministry. And what's so amazing is how many of you have so many things that are about your heart for ministry. And I'm really thankful for that. Bottom line, Paul never sees his work in the kingdom as solo work. I think he's following Jesus in that. Some of the first things that Jesus did was call disciples to follow him because he knew that they were going to live beyond him and they were going to carry things forward. Paul never wants to work alone in the kingdom. And he recognizes these people, people that some of whom he's never met. Priscilla and Aquila are not in that list. He's worked with them before. They're now in Rome. He was with them in Corinth. He sent them to Rome or they went back to Rome. But bottom line is, he sees all of these people as people that he's locked arms with to do the good work of the kingdom, to spread the gospel. And we need to be following in that example. But Paul doesn't start this list with a greeting. He starts this list with a word of commendation. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way, way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Phoebe, the benefactor. This is a big word in the New Testament times. These are the kind of people who lived in a community who said, I'm going to take some of the local projects on myself. If a new uh, waterway needed to build, be built in a city, it wasn't so much about taxes being collected as the recognition that there are people whose businesses have succeeded because they live among us and are in this place, and they are to be benefactors. They're to contribute things to, to the work that's going on. Paul had many benefactors, people who helped him in his ministry, who gave financial assistance, maybe found some housing for him, different things that he did. Yes, there were times that he worked as a tent maker. But in reality, more of the time, he depended on the benevolence of various people. And particularly, Phoebe is pointed out here as someone who has been one of his benefactors. It is a formal word that has a bigger meaning than just the way we talk about it. Jesus had women who traveled with him who took care of him, who maybe paid for some of his expenses, and that is recorded in Luke's gospel as well. Likely, she is the person, and the reason this language is so important, there's some grammar here that's going on, that she is the person who delivers the letter that Paul and Timothy and that Tertius has taken the time to put in pen and ink to. She has delivered this letter to Rome, and it was common in that day and time, if you are designated the person to carry, you weren't just like a postman who brought it to the box and dropped it in. Instead, particularly for a letter like this, that's not just a memo that says, 
we have 12 gallons of oil in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the storeroom, in the warehouse, which would be an important piece of information for certain things. We have actually preserved notes from the first century that say things exactly like that. But this is not what this is. This is a very important letter, and there would be a person who would carry it, but not only would that person carry the letter to its destination, but they would have been trained to read it in front of its recipients. They would have voice inflections that they knew. They would have probably people that they were supposed to point to in the audience, in that home that was meeting together and gathering around that table would say, now this message is intended for you and this message is intended for you and probably got louder at some times and softer at times, read faster at some times, slower at some times, all coached by Paul to deliver his message to that congregation. She was probably the carrier of that letter. But probably many of you have already kind of landed on a word that's on the screen. It's the word deacon. And it is an important word. It ties to the idea of many people working in the church there. It is the word for servant. This is consistent throughout Paul's letters, throughout the New Testament, in many different places, the servants. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he describes the Roman governing authorities as servants of God. Exact same word in the Greek. Paul and his co-workers. Paul describes himself as a servant. He describes his co-workers as a servant. In fact, Christ is even called a servant to the Jews for the benefit of the Gentiles. And it's this exact same word. I would encourage you not to get stuck on that word. However... I do want to point us to two very powerful words in this passage. The words commended and worthy. He will say many good things about many different people in this list. But worthy is a word that he reserves for Phoebe. He commends her to them and says that she is worthy of your respect and your attention she is worthy to receive a full measure of your fellowship. Not just that he would speak these words, but that he speaks them over this sister, a sister in Christ, a woman. Ladies, I'm going to ask you to excuse me for a moment. I need to talk to our men. But it is my prayer and my hope that in talking to our men, you hear me affirm something that God says about you. I am so thankful for the women that work so hard for the gospel and the kingdom and for this congregation. I watch you do your work every day. And I think about all the ways in which this church would be so much less. In fact, one might go so far as to say whether or not we could really be church without what our women do among us. Amen? One of my mothers in the faith is Joanne Taylor. And I told Joanne I was going to say this. And it's just, I'm sorry. It overwhelms me how much energy she brings to everything she does. And I am so thankful that she's on my side. Amen? And I am so thankful that she's on Jesus' side. Amen? Because, man, if the devil had her, he'd have something, wouldn't he? But he doesn't. Christ has her, and she is worthy of my praise, as are so many women that I am so thankful for. 
It is my hope that when I speak of you, women, the women of this church, and that when I interact you and in, interact with you and the way that I treat you, I hope that it says powerfully how much I commend what you're doing and see you as incredible, worthy partners in the gospel, in the kingdom, and of the work of this congregation. This kind of language has to start at home with husbands and fathers. It has to start with me as the male leader in my household, now three generations. I have to be treating my wife the way God would want her treated. She is worthy of my respect. She is worthy. She is so much more than worthy of my love. She is worthy. She is a worthy. And I commend her to you as a partner in the gospel. I'm really glad she's not here today because I would really break down if I was had to look at her face. And I hope this church says amen to that. As fathers... The way we talk to our wives impacts not just our sons, but our daughters. What daughters expect and what sons know they need to do. And dads, if there's one thing you need to do in your household, if there is one place that your discipline needs to rise to a higher level than anywhere else, it is when your children disrespect their mother, there better be, excuse me, hell to pay. Because it is hell that's winning when a woman is disrespected. This idea continues in our attitudes toward the women we encounter in the workplace and in our community. We need to be sure they know that we respect them. We need to be know, sure that we know that, that they know that we see them as worthy partners in all that we're doing in life. But shame on us if the workplace would be the place that leads our way in commending the worth and value of women as co-workers. Because it must be essential in our interactions and fellowship and ministry in our congregation. Paul has spent an entire book saying that Jews and Gentiles need each other to work together. I think he closes with this chapter and says, I need men and women to work together. If we are to take our cues from Jesus, we recognize the essential nature and role of women if we're going to be God's kingdom here on earth as Jesus prayed for us to be. And maybe, just maybe, we need to recognize the way these attitudes need to be a vital part of the way we are not conformed to what this world would tell us. Make no mistakes. Pornography's primary role is to diminish women. Make no mistakes. All of that smut out there is intended to take men and say, you can look at women as objects to be used and thrown away. The world wants us to think that way. No matter how much we have societal institutions that talk about feminism and all that thing until we stand up and say enough of this this isn't about freedom of press this is about making our women subservient 
Let us not be conformed to this world, but let us be transformed into who God wants us to be. And to recognize that what he said in Genesis chapter 1, the image of God is on you when you are partnered, male and female. That's not about being married to somebody. That is about the idea that we can't be all that God wants us to be unless we walk arm in arm, male and female, together. Are there differences between men and women? Somebody say yes. The Bible says yes. Are they to be commended? Are they worthy to be co-partners in the gospel? The answer is yes. I want to finish out the series and this sermon with some of Paul's words of blessing. Words that he saves for the end to say, I want you to know God. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know that he's on your side. By the way, he's on your side whether you're a woman or a man. He's still on your side. These words will be the majority of our invitation today. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Skipping down. May God who gives us His peace be with you all. And then skipping down into 16. The God of peace will soon. Hear that word peace over and over. Peace between God and man. Peace among Jew, Gentile, Roman, male, female, slave and free. Peace. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What a victorious word. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And then these words. All glory to God, who is able to make you strong, just as the good news I proclaim about Jesus says. All glory to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, forever. And we all say, Amen. Do you need a little more Jesus to make you more of what God wants you to be? And the answer is, for all of us, yes. I don't need just a little more Jesus. I need all the Jesus that I can get. I know that I need him. I hope that through this series of lessons, you recognize your need for him. As we sing this song, if there's any way in which we could answer that question, I need more Jesus, and, and give some legs to that and help you along that road, you're welcome to come forward. But you know, even more, I'd just like you to call and say, Alan, I'd like to talk. Or call one of our elders and say, I want to talk about how I can have a little more Jesus in my life. If you're with us online, we, we always offer the text 979-217-3300, start that conversation. Do we need Jesus? Church, do we need Jesus? Then let's all respond to his call as we stand and as we sing.
My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit 